Well, let's do this. Let's go over to Micah chapter 4. Now listen, praise God, because it, it almost looks to me like almost the exact same people are here this week that were here last week and the week before. Almost seems like that. And then online, I'm sure if you're watching this now, or you're watching this later, um, good for you that you made it through chapter 2 and 3, where we just talked about sin for two solid chapters. Now, enjoy some good stuff here coming up in chapter 4. So here's what I, I love about the prophets. They do this all the time. They'll, they'll mention what, what's going to happen, the discipline, but then they'll come back and go, hey, hey, guys, I just want you to know, God's ultimate plans aren't thwarted. There's a kingdom to come. And so chapter 2 and 3, especially chapter 3, it didn't seem like there was any good news at the end of it. Well, the good news is in chapter 4, where Micah points them forward to the day of the kingdom coming. Now, in the context, I don't know if they quite understood what that kingdom looked like compared to kind of what we know as more of the Bible has been revealed to us. For them, that this kingdom that's described in verses 1 through 8 would have been a restored kingdom, a kingdom where where a Davidic ruler was ruling from the throne, where all things were as they should be. And that's right and proper. Now, for most of us, uh, we would look at that and call that what's called the millennial kingdom. It would be this thousand-year reign of peace. It would, come, it would happen right after the Lord returns, a thousand-year reign of peace that would kind of be, I would say, almost like a, uh, an appetizer to the new heaven and new earth. And so we, we on this other side who've had kind of more revelation of the scriptures, a, a lot of students of scripture look at what we are going to look at in chapter 4 and go, oh, that's talking about the millennial kingdom. Now, I, I'll say this, the millennial kingdom, not all people, I wouldn't even say everybody in our church would be an adherent to an actual literal millennial kingdom. You kind of have different views out there. Like one view is kind of all millennial that would say, um, the, the talk of millennium in the scriptures is more symbolic and we're kind of living in that time spiritually. And when the Lord returns, that's just going to start the new heaven and new earth. Um, now I will tell you this, if anybody has prophecy talk with me, they're going to know that sometimes I vacillate between being an all millennialist and a millennialist. I vacillate depending on, you know, depending on what text I'm reading that week. It's a very complicated subject. Um, this week, I spent a lot of time re- rereading and studying that idea of the millennium. And guess what? I'm a millennialist this week, right? So I switched back over. So if you have an amillennial view and you're not really a, a, a strict thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, then I, I would say that's, that's fine. But I would also say there's ample evidence in Scripture that there will kind of be two phases of the kingdom coming and one kingdom would be the millennial kingdom where God will uh, fulfill the Davidic promises to Israel, to the ethnic Israel people, and he'll rule and reign from Jerusalem. It'll be a kingdom of peacefulness and right, righteousness. Uh, people will still be born during this kingdom. People will still need to be converted to Christ during this kingdom, except Christ is going to be visibly ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, so the chances are a lot higher. The scriptures talk about Satan being bound up during this thousand years, and so um, and then after that comes the new heaven, new earth, eternity, forever. I, I kind of describe the millennium as the fulfillment of God's Davidic promises, but also kind of like an appetizer, a warm-up. Now, whether you uh, literally support that or not it is, is inconsequential, ultimately, in the sense that like the Lord is coming back. Everybody has to agree. Whether you believe there's a millennium or not, 
all have to agree the Lord is actually coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to judge the earth in his righteous and holy standards. And he's going to bring in the kingdom, whatever phases you believe. But I think when we look at our text today, he's describing the millennial kingdom in verses 1 through 8. Now, here's what I want to paint for you. The idea of this message is hope in the coming kingdom. Hope in the coming kingdom. And we're going to see in the text that he paints a hope of the millennial kingdom to come. And then even in the midst of him telling them the Babylonian kingdom is coming for you, he ultimately says Yahweh's kingdom will come to pass exactly as it's planned. Now, here's the deal. Difficult times, whenever they happen in our lives, here's what people often will do. They can make it through those difficult times if they know that a better day is coming in the future, right? So, like, if you've been faced with not being able, like you and your spouse have been trying to have a baby and the Lord hasn't given you a baby, one of the things that keeps you going is the hope that, well, maybe someday that will happen. Or even in the midst of our kind of coronavirus kind of, kind of world, you know, a lot of people's hope is, well, someday things will get back to regular potential and they have a hope that a better day is coming. For some, uh, I had one particular friend who at the beginning of the coronavirus thing in March said, I'm going to go ahead and call my shot. This is what's going to wind it all down. All right. And, and, and his hope is that like the, the, that the kingdom is actually about to start. The Lord's about to come back. All that to say this, you do well in life when you know there's a better day. So, for instance, if you have a lot of debt in life and you're trying to pay off debt, your hope is that one day you'll be out of debt. Or that, that if you have a child that's far from the Lord, your hope is one day they'll come back to the Lord. So, hope, a lot of times, is, is often built on this idea that something better is coming in the future. And that's not really bad. But I will tell you this. Ultimately, all our hope can't be just on what's going to happen here. You know, so, for instance, if your hope is... Okay, the Lord hasn't given us a baby. We've been trying five years, but then like, you know, the Lord will here in the next couple of years. If your hope is based on that, now that hope kind of got you through, but that's not ultimately biblical hope. That's not hope that is sure and steadfast and steady and will surely come to pass. That's not a hope to anchor your soul in. But what is a place to anchor our soul in is the kingdom to come. That no matter what happens, God is going to bring about his kingdom. The Lord is going to return. It is going to be glorious and wonderful. No matter what happens with economy, with viruses, no matter what, with your job, no matter what, with relationships, no matter what, the coming kingdom is where we anchor our hope in. So if you know Micah, we've been talking about it, basically in Micah 4, uh, it looks like Assyria has already kind of at their gates or possibly already done what they need, what they were going to do to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Lord has held that back by his miraculous hand. And then the Lord has also prophesied through Micah and Isaiah that they're going to go into Babylonian captivity here in the future. Like Babylon's coming for them as a result of all their sin. And in the midst of this, this is how good God is. Telling them that judgment is coming for them, God also says, hey... I don't want you to lose it all because I want you to have hope that someday my kingdom will come. So he starts off. This is what, what this is how gracious God is. People think that God's not gracious when he because he's holy and he judges sin, but that's not true. What kind of a gracious God would tell you that judgment's coming someday, but then before that say, "Hey, but don't let that hold you down ultimately because someday the ultimate kingdom is coming. And someday the Davidic, the, uh, the ultimate ruler from the throne of David, from the line of David is coming. We're referring to Jesus. I mean, that's amazing that God would give that kind of grace and hope for them 
especially as they were going into Babylonian captivity someday. So let's look at chapter 4. By the way, just to kind of point out some things. The millennial kingdom. This is a thousand year reign of Christ. Um, that, that basically this is God fulfilling some of the Davidic covenant promises to Israel. At the same time, um, you find Satan bound up a thousand years. You can read that in Revelation 20. At the same time, what, what I believe is that you'll see saints, the saints that have died. Let's say if like we were to die today that those saints who have died before will have resurrected bodies and will help rule and reign during that millennial kingdom. And people say sometimes, well, that'll look weird. Glorified people talking to people who aren't glorified, who are still being born during the millennium. That's kind of weird. And by the way, that's why some people don't believe in a millennium, because they're kind of like, that's just too Star Wars. You know, that's just too weird. But I would say this. When Jesus, after he resurrected, in a glorified body... For 40 days, he hung out with people who did not have glorified bodies. And they continued on life. They ate together. They talked. So don't think that there's some abnormality. We have a wonderful ability to adapt. But in the millennial kingdom, let's say if you've lost a loved one, who, or, or let's say us, and, and we've died before the Lord comes, we'll have, many, would, many theologians would say, you'll, th- these people will, will be resurrected at the start of the millennial kingdom and that during the millennial kingdom, there'll be, these, there'll be this glorified Nick, okay? Let's just pretend that, you know, I die next week of choking on a hot dog or something, right? But that'd be a horrible way to die, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be like, you know, let it be something better, Lord. Please, Lord Jesus, all right? <laughs> but let's say you'll see a glorified Nick in the millennial kingdom, and he'll be ruling and reigning with Christ based on my faithfulness. Uh, in this life will will determine what kind of what kind of responsibilities the Lord gives to me during that millennial kingdom. I'll be mixing and interchanging with people who were born during the millennium or through the tribulation period stayed alive and entered into the millennial kingdom. I'll be interacting. That may seem weird, but it's not unprecedented when we watch Jesus 40 days after his resurrection. People will still be born during the millennium. In fact, let me read for you a couple texts just to talk to you a little bit about the millennium. Then we're going to look in Micah chapter 4. Look, um, if you want to, or I can just read it to you. Look in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah talks about this millennial kingdom. Which, by the way, just to point out to you, these prophets, when they talk about the new heaven and new earth, the final, I would say, the, the, the final kingdom, the final phase of God's kingdom, Sometimes they almost intermix these two together because the prophets didn't have a complete view of everything. They're just doing exactly what the Spirit of God is communicating to them. But if you know anything about progressive, what's called progressive historical redemption, God unfolds his story little by little, but it seems like he gives a lot of breadcrumbs leading up to the whole sandwich, right? So, like for instance, you've got you know, the Messiah coming. He gives it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, with Satan is going to have, is going to bruise the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah is going to basically, from his heel, crush the head of Satan. Now, that doesn't look very clear of Jesus and the cross, does it? But yet, it's a breadcrumb to lead us further down what's called progressive historical redemption. Then we get things like Noah and the ark, and that by God's grace, Noah's saved, like we're saved by grace, and Noah's saved from God's wrath by the ark, and Jesus is the ultimate ark. We've got, then you see things like Abraham and Isaac, and God makes a promise through Abraham that he was going to bring about not only the Messiah, but the gospel to the nations. And we see this promise being fulfilled in Jesus in the sense that he comes and he makes it available that the nations can come to him. We see 
we see promise after promise, breadcrumbs throughout, unveiling, unveiling little by little the progressive historical redemptive plan of God. And I would say this. When the prophets prophesy about the kingdom to come in the millennial phase, in the new heaven, new earth, I look at it a lot of times like breadcrumbs. Like, and all the times, I don't know if they can even discern. They're just treating it as one kingdom altogether, even as best they can understand in their kind of Jewish context. So, for instance, look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. It says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord, let's talk about the millennial kingdom, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is talking about on Jesus. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes, by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. He decide with equity the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, so, during the millennial kingdom, there will be this righteousness on the planet. True justice and judgment will happen during this millennial kingdom. It's a warm-up, an appetizer for the new heaven, new earth. But look what happens in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion, the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. Apex predators are going to be led around by a child. There's going to be, just so you know this, when we fell in the garden, all creation fell with us. In the sense that, not that creation, not that your animals sin, alright? So Bootsy is not a sinner, right? But Bootsy is riding on our coattails. And so we find here that even this millennial kingdom, we, we find animals now are not adversarial like they were before. Before the fall, there was not apex animal predator. They were vegetarians. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Okay, so, uh, you know, <laughs> a baby could be hanging out with a pit of vipers. And he's going to be okay. And the winged child shall put his hand at the Adler's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So even Isaiah, which during the same time as Micah is prophesying, there's going to be this wonderful kingdom. But you can even find, turn over to Isaiah 65. It seems like even Isaiah doesn't, doesn't, isn't, doesn't even in his own writings about this kingdom, doesn't almost... Dis- discriminate between the millennium and a new heaven and new earth. Now understand, those who have the all millennial view often will just go, the Lord comes back and then it's just new heaven and new earth. There's no phase one and two. There's no millennium than the new heaven and new earth. And I get that. And that is such a simplistic, more simplistic plan. It makes more sense. Great theologians through, through time have believed that. But also you find even some interesting things that even Isaiah, it seems like there's a little... He's mentioning both those things, even in the same text. For instance, look at Isaiah 65, verse 17. You might be thinking, we have not even got to Micah chapter 4 yet, Nick. Are you serious? <laughs> Did we just switch over to Isaiah? I thought we were just preaching the minor prophets. You're now at the majors. We'll get there, Lord willing. I kind of have two messages today. One message stops at verse 8. One message goes through the rest of the chapter. We'll just see what the clock does to me, right? You're probably already casting your prophetic vision of what will happen. Verse 17. 
Uh, This is Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forevermore. By the way, doesn't this look like actually a new heaven, new earth? This looks like the final state. This looks like the curse is gone, the fall is gone. That's it. It's over. Eternity forever. Right? No more, there, there, there's, there's no more sin residing in the heart of man. That's what it looks like. But be glad and rejoice forevermore in which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So Isaiah here is talking about that kingdom, but he's describing it as like not a bit of death, not a bit of anything. He's describing the new heaven and new earth. He's describing what I would would classify as that last phase, that new heaven, new earth. Everything is as it should be. The curse is gone. But notice in this, in this same text, he describes that. And then the next verse, look what he does. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days. Wait a minute. If we're in the new final kingdom, why is an infant even dying? Do you see how he's mixing the two? Sometimes even in the prophets, this millennial kingdom and new heaven, new earth are, are even hard for the prophets to separate out. They're almost meld and mesh these things together, it seems. Look at verse 20. And no more shall there be in it an infant who dies but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be a curse. So he, mixing in the same text here, you find describing even like two sides of this kingdom to come. I think he's describing at first the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, the final kingdom, then before that the millennial kingdom. I don't even know if Isaiah even sees a difference between the two, but it seems as we've had more of the unveiling of God's word through the book of Revelation, it seems like there that exists. By the way, just so you notice verse 20, during the millennium, people will still be born. Satan will be bound up, so there won't be as much devastation. But yet, even though Satan is bound up, the heart of man is still wicked. Men must still come to Christ. Now, I grant you, it's going to be a lot easier. And men... Men will live longer. It'll be a more peaceful nation. I mean, if like if Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem and you can see the Messiah and you can know that it's going to be a, a, a very good kingdom. People are going to live longer. It will not seem right if someone doesn't feel, fulfill their full days. Look at verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Just a side note. The millennial kingdom and the new Jerusalem are going to be much more earthly than you think they're going to be. Everybody always thinks eternity is going to be us floating around on like white clouds with like Charmin toilet paper. It's going to be much more earthly than that. You'll have a glorified body. You'll eat. Now in the millennial kingdom, it seems clear that you'll need to eat to sustain your body if you're not one of those that, that, that are glorified, have entered it glorified because you died before. If you're someone that's born or go into the millennial kingdom, you'll still need to eat. You'll still see need to sustain. Death can still come. But yet, it's going to be an earthly existence. Even in the new heaven, new earth, it'll still be an earthly existence, but yet in a glorified state. If you were to kind of create the difference in the millennial kingdom, there'll be people in it who were glorified, who died before the millennium, resurrected bodies. The, that would be the redeemed saints. And then you'll have people who are born. When you come to the new heaven, new earth, 
No one's ever born again. That's the, the curse is gone. There's no more reproduction. And everybody in the new heaven and new earth is redeemed and has glorified bodies fashioned for all eternity. Now, you might be asking, what happens to all the wicked? Well, a lot would say that the wicked actually, at the end of the millennium, will be resurrected. But not to a godly resurrection, but to a resurrection that's fitted for destruction. Which it would be, the, it would be that, that after the millennium, those who are not in Christ will be raised from hell to get judged, receive a body, not a glorified body, but a body fashioned for all eternity for the lake of fire, which I would describe as hell 2.0, then cast in the lake of fire forever. And then you have the redeemed saints get a glorified body, and they go into the new heaven, new earth forever. Now, it's interesting when you look at this, verse 21, during the millennium, it seems like people are having houses, they're inhabiting them, they're eating, they're planting vineyards. But I'll tell you this, even in the new heaven, new earth, I believe there will be eating. I see there's evidence of it. But you won't do it to sustain, you'll do it for pure enjoyment, to glorify God. By the way, this is the way I wish I could eat today. All right? Don't you wish... By the way, none of y'all have this problem, I know. Don't you wish you could just eat to enjoy the taste and glorify God for that taste and be done with it, right? Instead of like, you know, I'm just going to eat until I feel full. Do you understand, right? Like, I look forward to someday being able to eat so redemptively that I don't struggle like I do now. Y'all know nothing about that. I get it. Verse 22. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat this millennial kingdom. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Look, I mean, children are still being born, but yet... Labor is, is, is going to be more redeemed even during this millennial kingdom. Labor will not be in vain. Children will live. They, even the birth rate goes up. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the grass. The apex predators become vegetarians again. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So we're dealing with this millennial kingdom coming someday, this ultimate kingdom God fulfills. Now, when Micah preaches this and writes this, that's what I think he's pointing to in verse 1 through 8. I'm not so sure in the Jewish mind if they really separated out millennial kingdom, new heaven, new earth. I think it was all just one package to them as far as they understood. Now, when Jesus came, this is the kind of kingdom they were looking for. When Jesus came and they were asking, like, are you going to restore the kingdom? What they were looking for during Jesus' time was verse 1 through 8. Now, I don't know if they were looking at it as apocalyptic as we are, but they were looking for, is this the kingdom you're going to bring at this moment, verse 1 through 8? This is what we've all been looking for. So, nonetheless, Micah, in chapter 4, paints a picture of it, reminds them of it, and says, listen, as you go into Babylonian captivity, as things get bad because of your own sin, you will have hope if your hope is in the kingdom to come. Put your hope in the kingdom to come. What grace that God would do that for people who deserve the judgment they're about to get, but yet God in his grace is reaching down to them. This is what's awesome. You, if you truly read the scriptures, and they, people all the time are going like, you know, I, I don't like that God in the Bible because he seems like in the Old Testament, he's just this mad junior high kid. And I like the New Testament only because in the New Testament, he's just so loving and, and he wouldn't do anything to harm anybody. 
And I would go, man, you're not really reading the Bible. He's gracious all through the Old Testament, constantly reminding man of his sin, constantly giving him chances to repent. And even in the midst of this, this was amazing. Even in the midst of judgment coming, he says, a better day is coming. I'll be faithful to my promises, even though you're not. So when you go into exile and you lose it all, know that a better day is coming. A kingdom's coming. Put your hope in that kingdom to come. So look in verse 1. Now we're in Micah with 16 minutes left. It's probably just going to be to verse 8, people. We'll see. Place your bets now. I don't know. We're not supposed to bet, right? Okay. Verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. So this verse, Mike has let, I mean, he let them know in chapter 3, verse 12, the verse before, Babylon's coming for you people. It's not going to be good. More than likely, Assyria was, was at their doors knocking, as we've discovered a couple of weeks ago, before the Lord destroyed 185,000 of them. But yet, he says, there's going to come a day that from the house of the Lord, the Lord's going to rule and reign. Jerusalem's going to be the highest of the mountains. People are going to flow to it. Even when they were in Babylonian exile, this was going to minister to them. It would remind them. By the way, just to give you a little side note. Notice in this, it says, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. So in prophecy, I think I see enough evidence in Scripture that during the millennium, there will be another temple in Jerusalem. There'll be another temple. Now that temple won't be specifically to offer any kind of sacrifices because in that millennial kingdom, in a sense, uh, and if any sacrifices are done, it's not to actually get rid of sin. It would just be in memorial. It would just be to paint a picture of the Messiah that rules on the throne. Just like all the shadows and types we see in the Old Testament point to the ultimate Jesus. I mean, when you read, when you read your Old Testament, if you start seeing the gospel in it, you get really excited. I think we'll that's why we'll see a temple in the millennial kingdom. But also, when you study prophecy, you find that there'll be a third temple built somewhere in the tribulation period. Or a little bit before, but there's going to be another temple. There's been two temples so far. There was the one that Solomon built, and after the Babylonian exile, Babylon destroys that temple. When they come back from Babylonian exile, they build another temple. It's called the second temple. Sometimes it's called Herod's temple. Because Herod really added a lot to it. During Jesus' day, that was the temple that stood. Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 that that temple would get destroyed in 70 AD. But also in Matthew 24, there's... It, remember, have I told you that prophecy is sometimes far away, close up and far away? When you look at Matthew 24, you find two things. You find that Jesus is referring in the context of their culture to the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. But also you see apocalyptic talking about the second coming of Christ with such cataclysm and and it talks about a kingdom at that time Uh, uh, I'm sorry a temple at that time so what I'm saying is this there seems to be evidence in the scriptures even in Matthew 24 that that second temple would be destroyed but there would also be a third temple someday and that would all revolve around when you're studying the scriptures what what is described is that that third temple is going to, in Jerusalem, is going to be a place where the Antichrist will come in and proclaim himself God. 
If you want to turn to it, I'll read it for you. I'll give you one scripture passage that talks about that. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 11. says, Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be shaken in mind and alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They were concerned that the Lord had already come back. He said this. And I think we ought to actually listen to this scripture, you know. Let no one deceive you in this way. For the day will not come unless the rebellion first comes. The man of lawlessness, talking about the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, whom opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so he, that he takes his seat in the temple of God. That's the third temple. Proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that it was I, when I was still with you, I told you these things. And you know that it is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So, by the way, so people say all the time, Nick, do you think the end is coming? The Lord's about to return? Absolutely. I think it's been imminent. I don't think, I, I see in the scriptures, no man knows the day nor the hour, so... Going around being predictive of everything, you got to be very careful of that. A lot of people have made predictions for thousands of years, and they've all been wrong thus far. But I will tell you this. If you see a temple, this is what I tell people all the time. If I see a temple get rebuilt in Jerusalem, I'm probably going to start punching the time clock at some point. Right? I'm, I'm going to start saying it's, it's winding down. And just so you know on the side here, um, and by the way, I get, you're like, this has something to do with this topic. It kind of mixes in together. But this temple, you know, in 1987, uh, they started to build, they started to put together a kind of a temple organization. You know, even right now, the plans are there. The priests are there. They're, tra- they're, they're training. The utensils are there. And all it would take is somehow, and I don't know how in the world it would ever happen, that, that rebuilt temple for, for the Jews in Israel, that they could do their sacrifices again, which, by the way, it, it wouldn't atone for sin. We already have the great atonement in Christ. But I'm talking about secular, um, secu- uh, secular but orthodox Jews. Today, they've already been practicing all the sacrifices. They even have the, 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 the clean sacrifices ready to go. Somehow, I don't know, because if you know what's going on, there's a dome of the rock where Muslims worship. That's, that's supposedly the site where the next temple will be, or pretty close. Not really sure those two things can stand side by side. Many suppose when the Antichrist comes, what's going to make him so powerful, you always heard the thing of like peace in the Middle East, peace in the Middle East, and like no one can accomplish it right. There's always these, these, these treaties and pacts, and then like they get broken the next day. Well, the Antichrist is going to come in and somehow, I don't know, but that temple is going to be able, he's going to be able to broker a deal between between ethnic Jews and ethnic Arab Muslims there, and somehow that temple is going to get built. I don't know whether the Dome of the Rock will still be standing at the same time next to it, different location. I have no idea exactly. A lot of speculation on that. But I do know this. The very fact that the Antichrist could broker such things that the UN never could will lead him to being basically kind of like king of the earth. And he'll go into that rebuilt temple and proclaim himself God. Now, I will tell you this. That's when I personally, as my study of Scripture, I'm going to start going, okay, okay. 
I don't know the day nor the hour, but boy, we see fulfillment of prophecy right in front of my eyes. By the way, just so you know, in 1948, Israel comes back to their land for thousands of years dispersed and gone. No one ever is dispersed from their land that long, still remains an ethnicity unto themselves because they kind of intermarry mostly among themselves and comes back. Even today, I mean, the, the, the very potential that there could be another temple that fills, that's, even if it fills part of biblical prophecy, shows you that nothing's out of control and haphazard. God has a kingdom to come. But nonetheless, when we look at our Micah in our text, we find that there'll be a, another temple, a fourth temple, it would seem, in this millennial kingdom, not that offers sacrifice in the way of forgiveness, but is memorializing what God has done through the gospel, through all out the Old Testament. And we see in verse 2, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. So people are coming during the millennium to King Jesus. They want Jesus to teach them. I mean, Israel could never obey to obey him, couldn't obey the, the, what God wanted, but yet during this day there will be widespread obedience. In verse 2, For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Not only will the word be made flesh, be living among us and speaking to us, but the word of God will be magnified in a way it's not now. It says in verse 3, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. All the nations that rage against each other during this time, those disputes will, disputes will get settled by the king of true peace. The king who can really bring true peace to the Middle East. And they shall, here's how, how, here's how much peace is reigning during this millennial kingdom. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, a lot of our technology that we have today comes from actually war technology. I mean, that's, that's really, I mean, some of the greatest advances we've had have been as a result of war. You know, even the bare aspirin that you have descends from actually Nazi scientists, right? I mean, like, anytime nations do research and develop from vaccines to, to their missiles to even now, it's a lot, now it seems like a lot of, War, wartime kind of preparation is, has to do a lot of like technology and hacking and computer systems. Imagine all the effort put into that got put into just blessing humanity, right? Put into actually furthering humanity's cause. That's what's going to happen. All the great, all the, all the money that like America spends to protect itself will now be invested in actually agriculture will be invested in making this the right kind of earth that that the kingdom should be for verse four now what's interesting he's telling them all this because he wants them to know that while you're in babylon there's this this kingdom's coming now as far as they knew when they came back from babylon this was going to start and they were always looking for this and this is this kind of kingdom is why they rejected jesus they didn't quite understand that there would be two phases of the Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that would be a conquering king, but the first Messiah will become a suffering lamb. Verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Wouldn't you like to have a fig tree? I don't know. I, 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 I just imagine it'd be kind of nice. But basically what we see he's saying is every man is going to have his own vineyard, his own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth 
of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And that day especially, you could have your own land, but there was always a danger of war elements of another country coming. But in that day, the kingdom of the millennial kingdom, you'll never have to worry about, are you going to lose your land? Are you going to lose your place? In fact, it's going to be such a peaceful existence that if you like camping now, you're going to camp a lot, I think, during the millennium. In fact, I think people are going to be living more outside than they've ever lived before. For all peoples walk, each in the name of its God. Now, people look at this and go, whoa, 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 whoa. You mean people can worship pagans during that time? Well, people can worship. I mean, during the millennium, you will still have to make a decision. Man's heart, man, men will still sin during the millennium. It just won't be as plenteous. Man will still have to, have to follow the Lord. We'll still have to respond to the gospel call. Because the wicked and sinful hearts are still there, even though Satan's bound up. Which just goes to tell you. If people can rebel during the millennium, it must let you know that you can't blame every sin on Satan, right? People go, well, the devil made me do it. I'm not so sure. Our sinful heart is what initiates that process, although Satan definitely sweetens the pot. But look, he says, everybody's going to, he says, for the people, for all the people shall walk in the name of its God. He, what I think he's doing is he's comparing, this is what happens right now. Everybody walks in his small G-God, but someday we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. So by the way, notice he says, in our God forever and ever. So even as he's looking at this text, from our perspective, we see this really as a lot of the millennial kingdom, it would seem. But even he's describing this as forever and ever. That's why I say, I really see the millennial kingdom as kind of part one of, of, of heaven and then you kind of would see like the new heaven, new earth. It's kind of like part two of heaven on earth. It's, it's the warm-up. It's the fulfillment of the Davidic promises. It seems even the prophet here describing this is still thinking of it as forever and ever. So we see here, this is how God does things. And, and by the way, people sometimes go, this just seems too complicated. Well, it seems like God progressively reveals things. And it seems like that's how he's doing some with eternity. But you can't. You can't erase this. Here's what the Lord has said. And you don't have to turn to this, but I'll read it for you. The Davidic throne, the Davidic promise, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 17, this is, what, this is what was said to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come and who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline them with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words. Now, when that was spoken, it was in the text of earlier of David desiring to build a house for the Lord. There's a connection between the temple and the kingdom. And even when it goes away, like Babylon destroys that temple, that temple gets rebuilt and they come back into the kingdom. And then, and then now the temple got destroyed in AD 70. I think you're going to see another temple when it comes to the kingdom. Because there's this tie between the Davidic promise and the temple and the land. God's going to fulfill every promise he ever made. Now, if you want to go, I'm not a millennialist, I'm just going to be an amillennialist, and that's just going to start eternity forever, I say fine. Because in the end, if Jesus has come back, it's all going to be good. (laughs) 
Like we're all going to like what's going on. Nothing, nothing really, nothing really going to make me upset about that. Look at verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Which, by the way, it's interesting. I will, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Which, once again, remember, these prophets are talking. They're mixing these two, this new heaven, new earth, and millennial kingdom. I'm not sure they, they see a difference between the two at their time when they're writing this. I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. Well, if this is just eternal only, how are there lame coming into this kingdom, right? I mean, so there's still some earthly, there's still some people that are entering into this kingdom not completely whole or being born that aren't completely whole. But yet, I also love this. Those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. Those who have been disciplined by the Lord. I mean, there's going to be, I believe, saints who, who the Lord has disciplined them with death. We find at the communion in 1 Corinthians, we find that even saints who were taking communion unworthily, God was taking their life. I think these saints will be raised and get glorified bodies in the millennium. Those, I mean, this is how great His grace is. Once you're saved, like, and you're, you, you persevere in the faith, even if you had to be taken out because of discipline. I mean, like, the afflicted, the Lord, the ones that he's afflicted, they still are coming into the kingdom, those who are followers of Jesus. Verse 7, And the lame I will make the remnant, those who were cast off a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from that time forth and forever. So he's describing the lame coming into this. So this can't be an, uh, uh, the final new heaven, new earth. But then at the same time, he calls this kingdom forever, forth, and forevermore. He's mixing the two. He says in verse 8, O you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So he tells them, listen, this is going to be bad what's coming up for you. But I want you to know this. There's a kingdom to come. Put your hope in that kingdom to come. Do not put it in this life. Even the discipline you're going to go through. Now you might be wondering, well, Nick... You made it to verse 8. What are you going to do now? I don't know. (laughs) We'll do this. I want to make sure and do something. Look look at... um, I think I'm going to stop it in verse 8. Because there's so much in verse 9 through 12 I want you to pick up. But here's what I want you to get. Now, you, you might be wondering, like, Nick, you talked about stuff I've never even heard of. And if that's you, please talk to me. Let's talk about what the millennial kingdom is. We, don't, we haven't talked a lot about end-time events, but it's really in the text. But I want you to come away with this idea. There's a kingdom to come for us. The Lord is going to return. He'll make all things right. Whether it's phase one of the millennial kingdom to phase two, the new heaven, new earth, or it's just new heaven, new earth, and that's what you, where you want to rest your soul. But I will tell you this, you'll never make it if your hope is in only my finances are going to get better. My health is going to get better. We're going to be protected. My kid's going to bear, you know, marry a godly woman. I mean, like, if you put, or, you know, I'm going to be married someday, or we're going to have kids. Like, if you put all your hope, or, man, I want to have this house, or I want to have this lifestyle, or I want to have this job, or I want to have this career. If you put all your eggs in that basket, you're going to be disappointed. Disappointed. Now, I'm not saying give up. I'm not saying don't, 
Don't try to, I mean, like, even in the millennial kingdom, even in the new Jerusalem, we're going to be working. We're going to be industrious. We're going to be doing things. We're not just going to be sitting around eating macaroni and cheese, okay, or eating, you know, fruity pebbles. I just imagine, you know, if what would be the cereal that God would we'd have in heaven, it's probably fruity pebbles, right? Because there's clear, clearly, that is the best cereal that's ever been created. And, well, it's it's better now. You've got Fruity Pebbles, but you know what they've done to even make it more boss? They've added marshmallows, right? How boss can you get? Fruity Pebbles with marshmallows. I'm just saying. But if you're going to get to, I mean, like, if heaven, even is not going to be just sitting around eating a bunch of cereal. You're going to be working, but your work is going to be redemptive. Have you ever gotten to a day and you thought to yourself, like, you got to work, and you wrote down on your little, on your little sheet or you tried to put in your notes, here are the five things I want to do here at work today. And when you get to the end of the day, you got a quarter of number one and maybe an eighth of number five, and you felt like you got nothing done that day. And then like every time you tried to work, there was a disruption. What would it be like someday to be able to work and be effective and efficient and think clearly and have no fog of the brain or not have to need coffee to wake you up, you know, only to drink so much you get jittery and you get a headache and you can't even concentrate at that point? Y'all know what I'm... You know what I'm dropping here, right? Because here's the deal. You don't put your hope in this life. Now, that doesn't mean parachute out. God's left us here and put us here for a reason. To glorify him, to bring people to him till the kingdom comes, to make disciples for God's glory. But don't put your hope in all the things happening that you ever wish would happen so that you can experience all the joy that you've ever wanted to experience. Your ultimate hope is in glory. And I love that God is so good to them. That in verse 9 and 10, which will be next week, he, he tells them something awful is coming upon them. But before he did that, he said, you're going to be okay if you remember the kingdom to come. And church body, you will be okay if your eyes are on that kingdom. But if your eyes are only on this kingdom, you're going to get very discouraged. You're going to get depressed. You're going to be unforgiving. You're going to be miserable. Put that, those eyes on that kingdom to come. When your relationships will be devoid of the curse. Where the closeness that you've always desired will be there. Where you'll eat food in a way that's redemptive. You'll enjoy, you'll, you'll enjoy your work in a way that's redemptive. That's the kingdom you're looking for. And I can think of no better reason to even take communion today. Because when we take communion, we're not only remembering what he did but we're reminding ourselves that there's a kingdom to come. That's why I tell everybody, when Jesus took the Last Supper and he said, keep doing this, he didn't take that last cup because that last cup, that fourth cup, was meant to be the kingdom cup. When we take communion, God wants us to remind ourselves, don't put your hope in this alone. Put your hope in me and that someday you'll be in the kingdom. Until that time... I've left you here to bring as many with you as possible into that kingdom.